Welcome back to another episode of the Magic Talk podcast. I'm really excited to be sharing this episode with you because today we have Doug McKenzie on the podcast. If you don't know who Doug is, Doug is a fantastic magician、uh, living in New York. He's incredibly inventive, creative, and he just has this ability to find. Unrepeatable miracles and creating unforgettable stories for his audiences everywhere he goes. In addition to being a great performer, Doug is also a creative consultant for many big TV shows that you may have seen on TV or on the internet, including David Blaine, Dynamo, Cyril. If you've seen it, there's a good chance that. There was a part of Doug in that show. In this episode, we spoke a lot about Doug's early influences. We spoke about virtual magic. We spoke about how to look for opportunities to create miracles, as well as Doug's story of getting arrested in Hong Kong. Yes, it's a good one. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, please share this with as many friends as possible. And if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can get in touch through Instagram at Mr. Anson Chen. That is at M R A N S O N C H E N. So, without further ado, Doug McKenzie. Hey, buddy. Hey, how's it going, Doug? I'm good. Long time no see. Good to hear your voice, man. You look well, buddy. Thank you. What have you What have you been up to?、Uh, I've been working a lot,、um, doing a lot of virtual shows. Things are somewhat getting back to normal, so doing some Vir- shows. virtual and live shows, and both. Well, you know, for the past couple of years, mostly virtual, but now getting back into live, and、uh, you know, things are picking up. That's But, great.、Yeah. And what's your last kind of live show like? Um, so I've done a few a few fun ones recently. I did one. You know, I do a live show together with my my business partner Ryan Oaks.、Uh, we have a show together. It's called、mm-hmm. Digital Deception.、Uh, it's a tech show, so it's like magic and tech mixed together.、Uh, and they've been really fun. It's、um, you know, it's we've taken some of the things that we learned from our virtual show in COVID, and kind of. Brought them into our live show, so it's nice. We've created, you know, the opportunity to create hybrid stuff and create interactive magic for the whole audience, and make it tech and fun. And yeah, that's that's a hard balance to strike, right? Because so often technology is technology, but then technology is not always amazing, right? But、and、I think how do you, you, yeah, how do you achieve you that? Start to use tech. So you know the stuff that we do is not necessarily magic with like something super high tech that people don't understand, right? Even though like, look, you don't understand when you make a phone call on your cell phone that like what really is happening, right? Like you don't necessarily understand like all the connections that are being made to the satellite and back down through. No,、cable. not at all. Nobody understands that, but even not understanding that, people understand. I think the the boundaries of What constitutes a phone call, and what's possible to phone call, what's not possible to phone call, right? So I think there's certain technologies that are so ubiquitous and accepted, and 
you know, that people are so used to that, like, when you can involve those in magic, they can be magical because people understand those limits, right? Uh, versus doing magic with some kind of crazy new tech that people attribute the magic to the technology and not to the magic, right? So, yeah. And you guys were doing that before COVID and this whole like virtual sure. trend came up, right? Yeah, so we, we got lucky. We started our kind of tech magic show, I think, in 2017. And, um, you know, when COVID hit, all our events were getting canceled. So in February 2020, everything was just getting canceled. And I'm very fortunate that my partner, Ryan Oaks, in the end of February said, we should do a virtual show. There was no demand for it. There was no, mm. uh, there was no quarantine, no lockdown. But he said, look, everything's being canceled. We should just do a show online. And I said, great. And he came up with a name for it, Alakazoom. We registered alakazoom.net on March 6th. That's great. On March 6th, 2020. And then I got COVID. And during the time I had COVID, um, we built the show. I was lying in bed. I had two weeks of my isolation, you know. So I was just in the phone every day and uh, researching and building a show together. So before lockdown even happened, we already were selling a show. And then... Um, yeah, because we were so fast, I give all the credit that to Ryan. Uh, we we launched pretty hard and fast, and it was it was successful. Um, and because we had so many tools built that we were already using in our stage show, mm -hmm. I could just recode them or repurpose them a little bit and like use them for a virtual show. And we offered a lot of virtual shows in the beginning for free. We did it for friends and family. We offered them to clients. And right. after every show, we would send out a survey with three questions and we collect data on that survey, like what worked, what didn't work and what, like, I get three questions about what was your favorite thing, least favorite thing and what didn't work or something like that. Right. And we collected all the data and we figured out what was working, what didn't work and how we could improve the show. And we just kept iterating and iterating and we still iterate, um, but we found the stuff that works. And then we started doing demos. Like every day we just get on, on zoom calls with agencies and uh, companies and just, do like a 20 minute demo for people so they could see what they were buying. Cause nobody knew what a zoom show was, you know? Right. So, you're in, you're kind of introducing them to yeah. that world, and, and right? Showing them that what was possible. And we produced our zoom show like a TV show, you know? So I have this TV background. So, um, you know, it was a pretty high tech setup, especially back then when everyone was just doing like one camera straight to zoom, we were already, Ryan was calling me on Skype and I'd take his video and mix it with mine and put it out together and like have sound effects and music cues and uh, multiple cameras. And, you know, we had a pretty advanced show set up very early on. Um, you know, I went on Twitch and I watched what gamers were doing. And I learned from a lot of gamers how they were interacting with their audiences yeah. and kind of, uh, you know, it was inspired by that. Um, I spoke to some friends who were streamers already and mm -hmm. asked what software they were using, what their camera setup was, their lighting setups and all that kind of stuff. And, yeah. and are, are the shows like open to public or are they purely all, private? All, all corporate private. Great. We've, we've never done a public show. We've done some friends and family stuff. Again, only typically for testing new material because we're always finding new ideas and testing things and, you know, don't want to do that in front of a, a paying audience always. So test some different people yeah i mean but so over the now live shows are coming back right yep are any of the virtual things that you've developed 
over the last two years? Did they kind of bleed into your live shows? Sure. So we we created a few um, interactive pieces that you know were like, hey, this this will work. Initially, we said, you know, this would be good for a hybrid show that we could do something virtual and live, and this would work. And now we're just doing it sometimes just for live audiences, and it's it's really good. It's uh, it's just interactive and fun, and you know, we definitely learned some things from virtual that work live. Uh, mm. Yeah. What's your so given all these like genres like you do close up, you do stage, you do magic, mentalism, virtual. Um what's your favorite kind of show setup now like performance conditions it's a good it's a good question i'm i'm still um i still love close-up i think out of everything yeah it, it gives me the chance to play more than in any other arena that uh we mm -hmm. perform especially like with a two-person act um you know with a two-person act everything has to be really scripted so that Ryan says his piece. I see my piece. We don't step in each other's lines. I know when he's going to stop and he yeah, 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 yeah. stop. And so there's a rigidity to that that that's necessary, right? I mean, I think there's a reason Penn and Teller only one of them speaks. It's a lot easier, uh, <laughs> much easier. <laughs> but you know, we have this 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 show that's it's really fun, uh, and we have fun, and we you know, we did hundreds of shows uh, during COVID, and, and it was good because we also developed the chemistry that. We wouldn't have been able to develop um, just doing stage shows, hundreds and hundreds of stage shows in that short of a period of time. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So we were able to build in our chemistry, and um, yeah, it's been like I said, it's been a lot of work, uh, but we definitely learned a lot from it. But you know, with close up, I get to play a lot more. The stakes aren't as high, so like, if something doesn't happen exactly as planned, like I can, I can do a left turn and it's, it's easy versus like on stage with two people, we have things that we each have to say and like something doesn't work exactly as planned. It's like, it's a lot harder to improvise in those moments. It's possible and we do, but um, it's definitely not as um, fluid of a show than, than a close-up show could be, you know? Right. So when you say close-up, what, what's kind of the close-up environment? You mean like close-up like one-to-one -one, <laughs> or you, do you prefer like, doing like kind of close-up parlor in front of a group that kind of situation um, it's a good question i you know i think what's interesting at close-up in, in in the definition i'm using is it could be anything right uh right. in a kind of small intimate space versus like on stage with like music cues and lighting and and a whole tech crew and everything right that's like a whole different animal than just me with a small group of people and it could be literally anywhere i you know i have um i have to perform a show next week or 10 days from now nine days from now on, on a plane like i have someone hired me to perform it on a plane so you know that's gonna be a very weird setup i've never done that before you're gonna but do it's cart through windows it, say it again you're gonna do cart through windows i thought about it you know the whole burglar thing <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. and it's funny blaine blaine's done that before uh on a private plane I, I don't know if it was a, I don't think it was a private plane. I think it was a commercial plane when he did it. Um, no. Yeah. Yeah. Man, you, you guys must, must have some crazy Blaine stories, but, but one, one thing, one thing that I appreciate about um, you when we last spoke, I think was the, the story aspect of magic. And, and what I mean by that is like, you always think about, what is the story that the audience are going to leave remembering? Exactly. 
So right. Can you uh, talk about that for a bit? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I, the way I design magic is, is what do I want people to walk away and tell the story of, right? There was an exercise at Magic Live a few years ago where someone said, you know, I want you to write down the word that uh, you want that describes your magic. And a lot of people said amazing and wonderful and like, you know, all these kind of generic adjectives. And, you know, I put a lot of serious thought into it. And I said, I want my magic to be remarkable. And remarkable means, if you think about it, that people remark upon it, that people talk about it. And I want people mm -hmm. to talk about my magic. And I think the only way that people talk about it is if you give them a good story. And if people walk away with a good story, they're going to talk about it. And like the story is going to get better than it was because people like to exaggerate with stories and it becomes this mythical thing that happened, you know? So I've always kind of approached my magic in a, in a way of like um, thinking from the end, like what is the story people tell and then kind of working backwards from there. Um, so, yeah, I think Michael Weber has a great quote. It says the best story wins. And that's, uh, that's kind of Right. I always feel like that that is often misinterpreted for you, you, you as, oh, you're telling a story while you do magic, which is totally not the case. I mean, it could be. I mean, it's it, it's, it can it's be. A, it's a little bit of an ambiguous quote. But for me, it means like, you know, what is the story that people tell afterwards when they go and tell their friends? I mean, most look, most of my shows, I don't do a lot of um you know, I don't do any search engine optimization or I, I don't do any of that stuff. People book me because they've seen me or they've heard about me. And like, that's, that's why I'm booked. Um, and that's kind of the, you know, a lot of people like they try and get number one in like Google search and then like, the, mm -hmm. you know, mediocre job. And like, it doesn't matter because they've got like 50 more inquiries the next day that they can, you know. Right. Uh, but you're also, you're also hitting a very different target audience. I think that yeah. It's a relatively small circle that if you do a shit job, they're going to know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, you, <laughs> you don't want to do a shit job ever. That's, that's no, not, not ever. Reputation ruining. But, I, but there are plenty of editions that don't care about that. They do a mediocre. I don't think they do a shit job, but they'll do a mediocre job. And people go like, yeah, it's acceptable. But, you know, that's, that's not, not what I'm going for. Right. And so what story. there must be, there must be things that people say that you've done that regardless of whether or not it actually happened because of the way you construct things. Right. So what are some of the examples that you hear often yourself? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, I don't, I don't, that's a, that's a tough one. Oftentimes as people leave out certain details or they elaborate on something or they misremember something. So it's never something that's like completely like, way off base of something I've never done, right? But sometimes they'll like forget a small detail on something and I'm fine with that. I mean, it just means it makes it harder for them to construct how it happened, you know? Yeah, uh, that's part of, that, that's the part of the creation of the stories that right. th that you kind of encourage that myth to go on, right? Sure, sure. It's funny, I had, I had this idea um, a long time ago. There's a great story about these two French generals and each general agreed that they would only speak highly of each other, right? They would only speak like in all their social circles about how amazing the other guy was. And I thought that's such a great idea. And, and those two guys like climbed the ranks in the French army like faster than anybody um, because they were, you know, creating these stories. And I don't know if the stories were true or not, but like, you know, these stories were, were well regarded amongst their peers. 
I feel like that's something that people should just start adopting. I mean, sure. (laughs) But, you know, a lot of other emotions usually come into play amongst magicians. But, you know, I had this idea of like, you know, with magic friends to like create these mythical stories that may or may not have happened. Uh, But, you know, it kind of creates this aura of these amazing things. that. Okay. So starting from now, I will only speak highly of Doug McKenzie. Uh, well, I, I only speak with you anyway. So. <laughs> I know, me too. But now we have to make a point of like. <laughs> now you question the sincerity of it. This crazy thing. You're like, oh, wow. So <laughs> he was in Hong Kong. I was in New York. And this crazy thing happened. That's right. Yeah. Um, you were in Hong Kong. I've been in Hong Kong several times. <laughs> That's right. Can we can we tell that story of about you at you and the watch at Dragon Eye? Yeah, it, it wasn't Dragon Eye. It wasn't Lang Kwai Fong. It was near Dragon Eye. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I was in Hong Kong. I was there with Cyril and Rico de la Vega and Lisa de la Vega, uh, and we were working on a show for Cyril, like a TV show. Right. And, you know, we were landing. We've been in the Philippines the day before, and then we land in Hong Kong. And you know, I have several friends in Hong Kong, yourself included, and Sean McFarlane and Lauren Sullivan, and all these other kind of additional friends. Right. So of course, you know, I land in Hong Kong and super excited. I'm like, hey, I'm gonna call Lawrence, Sean, like whoever else, and see who wants to hang out. So we get there. We're in Lang Kwai Fong, which is the area where all the nightclubs and bars and kind of you know nightlife is kind of situated, mm-hmm. and you know, it gets pretty late and Lawrence Sullivan is there and, um, you know, Lawrence is like, oh, we should keep going out. You know, Cyril and Lisa and uh, Rico were all tired. I was like, you know, Lawrence, you know, I'm not here very often. We should, we should go out. So Lawrence and I go to some bar and it's probably like at this point now, four o'clock in the morning and, you know, nothing, nothing good happens after I'm going to say two (laughs) two hours later, (laughs) (laughs) two hours later, uh, we're in this bar and, you know, I haven't seen Lawrence in a while. So we're kind of showing each other things we're working on and, you know, just jamming back and forth and I'm starting to do magic for this girl and I steal her watch. And it's like a Casio watch, which are like super easy. They just come off the wrist. Like, you know, they're super easy. And I take it off her wrist. She has no idea. And we're in this busy bar and I hand it behind me like this to, to Lawrence, like just without looking, just hand it behind me. Waiting for Lawrence to take the watch and like maybe put it around a drink and buy the girl a drink or something or, you know, find some creative way to right. stick it in her handbag and then it's in her handbag or something, you know, like some improvised moment of story, right? Give this right, girl right, right. something that she's going to like walk away with. But that's not the story we gave her <laughs> because uh, <laughs> I handed this watch behind me blindly, thinking Lawrence took it. But meanwhile, somebody else must have taken it because I turned to Lawrence and I said, Hey, Lawrence. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like waiting for the watch to figure out, like, where's the story going, right? Like, like what, what, what are we doing for this girl? And he's like, What watch? And I go, The one I handed you. He goes, I didn't take it. So somebody else took the watch. So me being the upright, honest citizen that I am, I told the girl, I said, hey, I'm so sorry I lost your watch. Now, she has no idea the watch is gone. She looks at her wrist. She goes, where's my watch? I go, I don't know. I lost it. She goes, I want my watch. (laughs) I'm like, I don't have it. I lost it. Somebody took it from me. 
ironically, the pickpocket guy that stole your watch, someone stole from him, right? <laughs> so I like reach in my pocket and I pulled out a hundred US dollars. And I, it's a Casio, it's like 40 bucks. I say here, I mean, like, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel bad. Here's a hundred bucks. It's going to, it's more than twice. It's, you know, 250% of what your, your watch is worth. And she's like, nope, I want my watch. Like, I feel, I feel so bad. So I reach in my pocket, pull out $200. And I don't have any, it's the only, the only money I have is like US dollars because I just arrived that day. So I give her 200 bucks. She goes, nope, I want my watch. So I hand her all the money in my wallet, which is 400 US dollars. I go, this is all I got. I feel this is 10 times what your watch is worth. Like, I'm like in a bad situation here, you know? I'm like, if I can get out of it for 400 bucks, like, and like everyone's happy, I'll, I'll be happy, you know? And she says, nope, I want my watch. So Lawrence and I were like, fuck it. And we walk out the door and the bouncer grabs Lawrence. She grabs him. And I'm already out in the street and I turn around and Lawrence is like arguing with the bouncer. And I turn to Lauren or I come back and I go, look, it's not his problem. It's my problem. I created the issue here. And he goes, uh, well, we need to figure it out. So I come back inside and the girl says, um, we're going to call the cops. So like, okay. No. So cops come and the cops hear my story, they hear her story. And they come back to me and they say, uh, she wants 10,000 Hong Kong dollars, which is like 1400 US. What is it now? Back then it was like 1400 US. That is still correct. Yeah. So it's like Casio. For Casio watch. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I like laughed. I like no fun, like no effing way. Like, <laughs> and the cops go okay, and they well first actually before they did that they made me sign a piece of paper that said we were going to come to an agreement between us. So I signed this paper, and then she said she wanted ten thousand Hong Kong, and I laughed. And then they're like, okay, I guess you didn't come with an agreement. So they grabbed me and they marched me down the street, not handcuffed or anything, but they marched me down the street and they put me in the back of a police van probably like 5 a.m. now and uh and they start driving crazy through the streets there's like the driver there's the captain and this is like a guy next to me and i'm all the way in the back of the van and they're driving so crazy and now i'm like now it hits me i'm worried i'm like man (laughs) what am i doing i'm in the back of the police van in hong kong and, and I turn to the guy next to me, this like rookie cop, and I go, where are we going? And they slam on the brakes and the captain turns around and he goes, you're going to jail. We gave you your chance. You're going to jail. I'm like, fuck. So we pull up to central booking and I get out of the, the car. I was never handcuffed or anything, but I get out of the car and they put me in this small interrogation room. And this, a table and two chairs across from each other. And the guy goes, um, where's her money? And I go, money I, I didn't take her money I, I i took her watch and i pull i empty my pockets onto the table and i have like two cell phones uh like a deck of cards some coins and like my wallet and i open my wallet i show them i have 400 us dollars that's so like i just arrived in hong kong today i don't have any hong kong dollars i think she he said that i took a thousand hong kong from her but i disputed it. i was like i i didn't take any money i was like i took her watch i didn't take her money you know He's like, how did you take her watch? And so this rookie cop that had been sitting next to me, actually, let me preface it with this. I, you know, when I run in central booking, I asked the guy his name, this captain, trying to humanize myself and like charm him and be friendly. Right. And he was like, he pointed to his badge number and he's like 69484, whatever his badge was. And I, you know, in my head, I go, fuck, you know, <laughs> none of these tactics are working. So 
anyway, he asks about the money. I tell him I don't have the money. I tell him I took the watch. He says, how'd you take the watch? So this rookie had a G-Shock Casio. And, you know, it's not impressive if you know it's being taken. So in my head, I go, I just have to take it as fast as I can. So I grab his wrist and then take it off super fast. And he puts it back on. He goes, do it again. So I like grab his wrist and boom, boom, I take it off. And then they leave and they bring back four more people. Now there's six cops, including one female. The female sits down on one of the two chairs in front of all my stuff. And they say, do it again. So I like third time, take off the watch. And then the female cop goes, what else can you do? And I had all my stuff on the table. It's all like, <laughs> <laughs> so I grab that cards. I do a whole show. I'm like, you know, getting all of them involved. I'm going for each of them and multiple card routines. I'm like, you know, just trying to like make them like me, you know? And the, the, the captain, the asshole that told me like, you're going to jail and gave me his badge number. He now turns to me and goes, I understand. He goes, but look, uh, we brought you here. We have to do an investigation. Uh, but don't worry. And I was like, okay. So I sat in this interrogation room. They gave me a sheet of paper that had my rights. I still have it. It was half in, I don't know, Mandarin and half in English. And some of the rights were crossed out. I don't remember which ones I could look at it. But, That's but in great. My head, I was like, you know, it, the fact that they gave me a piece of paper that had what my rights were, like, I feel good. You know, like, I feel not good. I feel better. <laughs> right. You're not good, but I feel better. Because it means that, like, you know, there was definitely a process here and that, um, you know, there were some rules that they were following. About. Right. Anyway, so they left me in this interrogation room. And they said, look, we have to wait till we can take your statements. And then we have to wait for a translator. They're like, but this girl, she wants, um, and the girl apparently was still in the police station, but she wants a thousand US dollars. Or you can take this to a judge and a judge can decide. And I said, you know what? Let's just give her a thousand bucks. So, but I didn't have a thousand. So they're like, um, we can take you back to your hotel and you can get a thousand bucks. But I didn't have a thousand bucks on me at all. They're like, or I had 400. They're like, or you can get someone to bring it. In my head, I go, I'm going to get Cyril to bring it. Cyril's famous. When he comes here, they're going to know that like I'm legit, not some like pickpock <laughs> scammy dude that was like, stealing people's $40 watches, you know? So I was like, you know, let me call a friend. So I think I texted Cyril, maybe. I don't remember how I got to the Cyril, but I do know this. This was so long ago. They left me with all my cell phones. And, you know, I don't think they were supposed to, but I tweeted. I went on Twitter <laughs> and I tweeted God. that I was in a Hong Kong interrogation room. <laughs> and Lisa De La Vega woke up and she saw my tweet. And that's how she knew that I was arrested. Because they're like, uh, where's Doug? We left Doug last night with Lawrence. So she knew I was arrested. I think she might have called Cyril. And then Cyril came. And meanwhile, I, you know, I, I had been taken upstairs to like an interview room where these two detectives were taking my statement so it could be translated. And it's funny, as they were taking my statement, they were trying to tell me what happened. And I was like, no, no, can I not just tell the truth about what happened, you know? And so I like, I was writing my statement out and Cyril shows up and Cyril's laughing because, and I, you know, he's laughing that I'm like in this interrogation with these two detectives and he starts filming. He has this little camera with him. <laughs> and, you know, in my head, I'm like, great, at least, you know, I've got some footage from this. And the two detectives 
challenge me. They say, can you get out of handcuffs? And I say, yes, because maybe three weeks before that, I learned this crazy trick where I can get out of just one. Like if you put a handcuff, I can get out of one. If I put both on, I couldn't get out of them. But if I put one on, I can get out of no. them. No. Okay. So I put on one handcuff and Cyril starts filming. And then I go and I break out of the handcuff. And these cops are like freaking out, right? <laughs> freaking out. And um, Cyril leaves and I have the thousand bucks. And then these two cops get scared that their faces were in the footage. So they make me call Cyril back again. So I call him back and he's in the parking lot and he comes back to the, to the interrogation room and they make him erase the footage. So he erases the footage, but he kept the photos. So I have photos. I have no photos. way. Yeah, I have photos of me with, the handcuffs on and like the piece of paper in front of me that I was writing my statements. I have all these photos, I think three or four photos. That's anyway, great. Yeah. So then after I gave my statement and I broke out of the handcuffs, Oh, before that, even before Cyril showed up, I told them all oh, my friends coming at Cyril and they're like, the cops were like, Oh, can you get us tickets to a show? And I was like, no problem. <laughs> Whatever you want. Just get me out. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even ask you for tickets. I just I just said yes to you know, sure, not I'll get you tickets. Front front row, no problem, you know. Anyway, so they after I got the money, they I had to wait till the girl came back to the to the jail. So they moved me downstairs to like my own jail cell. And there was like a two-way mirror, and I had all my cell phones, I was on a different floor. Had all my phones in my wallet and everything in my pocket. I don't think they were supposed to have left me with that stuff. Um, I think they were supposed to take all of my stuff away. But they, because these guys had like, I showed them magic and now they were my friends. <laughs> they left me. They brought even brought me food. They went out. Someone went out and brought me food. Uh, a tray of food. And they're like, here, this is for you. And like a hot tea and stuff, you know, like they were, they were super nice. They treated me really, really well after the magic. Okay. And, um, so then I was in this jail cell and I could see this two-way mirror and I was on a different floor if I, if I remember correctly. So I knew it was different people. So I didn't know if they knew I had my phones or anything with me. So like I was texting people, but I would wait till the shadows, I could see shadows of this two-way mirror. I wait till the shadows passed and I'd pull up my phone. It was like a, an Ericsson phone. That's how long ago this was. And I would text people and then like put my phone away. And then at about two o'clock in the afternoon, this the girl showed up, she was brought into my jail cell and they asked me to apologize to her. And I apologized, I gave her the thousand bucks. She told me she was giving all of that money to charity, to her church, which okay. was, I highly doubt was true. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then I walked outside and Cyril and Rico and Lisa were waiting for me with the whole production van. We went straight to the first location. <laughs> That's been, oh my God. So yeah, Cyril built me up a thousand bucks. I owe Cyril a thousand bucks. And uh, you still owe Cyril a thousand bucks. I don't know. Cyril, was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. But that really like speaks for, I, I, I really think that really, really speaks for the power of magic. Sure. And it also speaks of like, I guess, you know, that I wanted to create the story for this girl of something amazing that would happen with this watch that just, you know, didn't, didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen the way I planned it to, but Hey, 
best story wins and I got a great story. So, you know, <laughs> or maybe, or, or maybe, or maybe Lawrence created the best story maybe. was in his pocket the whole time. And, and, and she, you know, she got a thousand bucks for her watch. So she got a good story too. <laughs> Everybody's got a good story out of that one. It was so yeah. funny, yeah. man. And, and that was my, that was the first time I ever heard about you. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I had, I had, <laughs> that was, uh, uh, yeah sarah was like doug mckenzie doug mckenzie i had to bail him out i had to bail him out it's like who's this but doug mckenzie he sounds crazy but i know he's a friend of uh lawrence so he must be a good guy but, it's funny yeah that lawrence was friends with the owner of the bar where the watch was taken and the owner of the bar asked lawrence not to get, to go to let the cops investigate because he didn't want the cops going through all the security footage of the bar to see what happened to the watch, because he was sure that at four o'clock in the morning, sketchy things were happening in his bar that he didn't want the police to see. I'm sure, so, yeah. So Lawrence kind of steered steered the ship away from like, let's look at the cameras, to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know. That's so funny. Yeah. I mean, do you do, do you do watch deals a lot? I mean, there I, I always hear crazy stories about people doing watch deals. Um, I do them. I still do them. You know, I have a few kind of fun watch the stories. That's one of them. Another one, uh, I was, I went to Panama for a week to go skydiving. Okay. And I get to Panama and, you know, there's like 20 of us. We all took a plane, like a jump plane that a friend of mine owns and we all took our parachutes and we get to Panama and it was, um, windy the whole week. Like every day was like gusting winds. And when it's windy, you can't skydive because the winds are unpredictable and it's not safe. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we'd wake up every morning and like see what the winds were doing. And we're like, oh man, and we'd hang out by the pool. And after like three or four days of this, we said, you know, we've got a plane here that's doing nothing. Like we can't skydive. Why don't we take the plane and just explore Panama? Like we can just fly around in this plane. Like we can all pack in. There's no seats in the plane. Like it's, it's a jump plane. So like you have to put your parachute on and like you all like sit in the plane and we would we flew around and before we flew around we we would look up like oh let's go to like the San Blas islands uh and we'd look at islands we'd find islands that had like long runways because you know this is like a Cessna caravan it's it's a pretty fast and pretty big plane uh you know you can take like 20 people on this plane so we had to find a runway that was like you know 3,000 feet long or something like that so we, we look in the map and we find a runway, this island that has this runway that's like 3,000 feet long. So like, let's go. So we all jump on a plane. We fly, I think, probably like 45 minutes. And we see the island. And then like our pilot, like, like those dives, we land in this island only to realize it's a military base. <laughs> so oh, we get shit. there and like all these military guys come to the plane and it's a problem. You know, they see like all these American guys like with parachutes, like, <laughs> you know, landing in this plane, American registered plane. And, uh, you know, we don't really understand what they're saying. And like, it's a problem. So, you know, to kind of diffuse the situation, I did magic. I, I pull out cards. I, I didn't even think I had cards. I think I just took a rock from the ground. And then I stole one of the guy's watches. And that footage is actually on my Instagram. It's like an old post on my Instagram. You see the, the footage of me giving the guy his watch back. It's this guy in like military outfit. And like, I gave it back to him and you just see his entire demeanor change and he starts laughing. 
and like it neutralized everything. After that, those guys were our friends and like there wasn't a problem anymore. And like, uh, yeah, it was great. So, you know, it was a little bit of a risky move, but, uh, but it worked out and, uh, you know, <laughs> that's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. So wow. again, it's opportunistic. It was like, I saw the guy had a watch. I took it. I didn't, I had a skydive stuck with me. I don't think I had much magic. So I was just doing magic with what I could, what I had around me. And, you know, I saw the watch and it also, it's the kind of thing you don't need to understand, like pick a card remember a card is, you mm-hmm. know, you can just take it and give it back to somebody and they realize you took their watch and like, it doesn't matter what language you speak or, you know. Yeah. Opportunistic is a word that I would describe, you know, like a lot of what you do, at least the, the, the impression that I get, like, well, I, I think all of my favorite magicians are, are people that think on their feet, right? I think, um, I think that's the most important quality for a magician to me, right? Magicians that don't necessarily do the same thing all the time, they're always looking for opportunities and how can they make that opportunity magical? How can they, make, how can they turn that thing into their advantage, right? Right. Oftentimes without making it feel like it was their idea. If you can make it feel like it's the spectator's idea or someone else's idea, even better. So, you know, I'm always looking for that kind of stuff. And in that case, it, look, it wasn't this guy's idea to steal the watch or whatever. But like, again, I, I just play with the situation. Um, I think that's important because it means also when you create a piece of magic that could only happen in that moment, it's, it's real. It doesn't mm-hmm. feel like, some hokey thing you do all the time that you say the same lines and the same jokes and it feels like I'm seeing this guy's act, right? It doesn't feel like that. The feeling that you give the spectator is different. It's something that could only happen in that particular moment and that's magic, right? Yeah, and you mentioned your favorite magicians all do that. So who who would some of them be? Uh, so David, David Blaine is really good at that. I think that's one of his super strengths. Aussie Absolutely. Aussie Aussie, a- yeah amazing at that Aussie's really good at that even in a stage scenario in, in like a, in a stage setup where like he's on a, on stage and in a show like he's really good at like kind of playing with all the environmental variables and like creating something that's just that is a rare skill to be able to do that on stage sure. I mean even yeah. close-up that's rare it is Chen Canasta was also amazing at it you know he was very good at improvising and um was he was he an, was he a big imp- improviser? I I I don't really know because I don't all, think he was a big improviser, but he was very he was very capable of improvising, right? So like you know, there's footage of him on Parkinson where he's doing a book test that goes wrong, but like it doesn't phase him at all. He's just such a pro that like he, you know he just goes to Plan B without even a hesitation. Like even me, who's familiar with the methods of what he's doing, watches it and like he fools me. They go, wait a second, like. Let me go back a second and watch the footage again to see like when the moment happened, you know? Oh, and the, and the method was so elegant. That, oh, it's amazing. That in and of itself could be another thing. It's so yeah. elegant. So, you know, he, he was just so good at that kind of stuff that like, hey, I think, I think most of it boils down to confidence that it doesn't matter what happens because in any situation, no matter what happens, you can turn it into something magical, right? So you've got a plan B, a plan C, a plan D and like, doesn't matter. So once you understand that and have and are comfortable with that, then like you can do anything. You can take risks because even if the risks don't pan out, just go to plan B. Nobody, you know, you'll still make something magical out of it. Yeah. The and, downside and is you... very low, but the upside is huge, right? So like it's uh 
there's a lot of room room to play there. Yeah, I think it's huge. I think that really makes the difference between a good magician and a great one. It's the occasional miracles and the and well as much as we can, right? Like yeah, but when, when that does happen, it becomes totally, as you said, remarkable. And then and then the question after that is how do you make that happen every time? Right. So how can you recreate that miracle? Um, how, like, you know, something crazy happens and then you say like, huh, how do I, how do I get the person to say that thing every time? Or how do I make this happen every time? And, it, and, and then you start to play with that. And then, you know, maybe it becomes something that you're able to do every time. Maybe it's not something you do every time, but like you could do it anytime you want it. Or at least you can, you can add that flavor of it in your kind of so-called standard thing. Sure. With that, like you, you build situations within that to. Right. Create an environment where it's conducive for that to happen. And maybe you don't do it, but like, you know, you have the opportunity to do it. I think that's important. Like you're all always trying to take advantage of what's happening right there and then. And, and you know, I also do, it's such small details, but like, um, you know, I, I, I might do like a sucker trick and then like, you know, something happens and I didn't get it right. And I, and I blame it on something that is local that happened right here, right now and not something else, right? And again, it feels like the magic is present and real and happening right now and not something I do all the time. Even if it's a trick I do all the time, like, a thousand times you know i think you have right. to try and make things real to the moment and to be present in the moment and to be an active listener and i i think my biggest um thought is what your spectator feels has to feel authentic from beginning to end meaning that like when you interact with them when you engage with them it has to feel like a real conversation and not something that feels like they're watching you have a conversation with them that feels like lines. And, you know, you've got like, you know, uh, some pre-programmed response to everything. It should feel authentic because if what you're doing doesn't feel authentic at any point, even the conversation or the engagement or the interaction in any way, it taints the magic, right? So, so the magic is no longer real for this moment. And how can that story that they tell later be an authentic, real story if like it didn't feel authentic to them, if some part of it didn't feel authentic, you know? Yeah, that, I mean, that is a very important part. But it also I, makes me kind of think of how, like what's your preparation process? Like how do you prepare for things? Do you rehearse? Do you practice? Do you, or do you just kind of like get an idea and get a flow of things and just go out in the world and do things? So it's a good question. I think my preparation comes with um, performance. So what I, what I do very often is I do a lot of A-B testing, right? So like I'll have an effect that I'm working on and I'll go out and I'll try it, say at a close-up event where I'm doing, you know, a lot of magic all night. And I'll try it in many, many different ways. And I see what works, what didn't work. And I, and I, you know, I think of a binary tree. Like I try A, B and I say, okay, this one was better. Now I go in that path and I try it two different ways. And I say, okay, this one was better this time. So now, you know, so you kind of refine what you're doing. Or sometimes I'll say, I want to, you know, 
for example, if I'm going to make a deck of cards disappear, I say in my head, I want to figure out new places where it could appear. And that's all I'm going to focus on tonight. Even I'm going to do everything else the same, but tonight I'm going to, whenever I do that piece of magic, every time I do it, I'm going to try and find a new place where that deck can reappear. And because I've done that effect so many times in so many different ways, that's a preparation, right? That like, yeah, you've, you've played with that piece of magic so much that, um, that you can adapt it to any situation, right? That like, oh, I'm going to make the, the deck appear on the bar behind the person, right? Or I'm going to make it appear in their purse because their bag is over their shoulder and you can get it in their purse or wh whatever it is, right? Um, so I don't know. I think the preparation is being playful with your magic always so that then you can adapt it to any situation, you know, because you've been in all the situations and played with your magic and you haven't done it the same way every single time. So you don't really follow that kind of school of thought where you're at home rehearsing lines no. after lines and practicing. The only time I do that really is, is um, together with Ryan Mording, our stage show, we have to do these kind of dialogue lines where that's the only time I really rehearse lines. Um, there's definitely a script of what I'm doing. Uh, right, but, but that's, it sounds like that's developed over time through performances. Sure. And, I think that happens to everybody. It, you might sometimes say something and it gets a really good response. You go, oh man, that was a good line. Or somebody else even says a joke. Your audience is a joke. You go, that's a good line. I'm going to use that next time or put that in the bank that I could use it or something, you know? Um, but yeah, there's definitely like a, a script, but you know, I follow it loosely. I don't say it like word for word. I, I kind of, you know, have a real conversation with people, make it real authentic. That's, that's also how you find style that fits yourself as opposed to just kind of regurgitating other people's lines and exactly. moments, right? Exactly. It's, it's how you find your timing as well, right? So I think a lot of magic is timing and like you find your timing because of your own natural rhythms and the way you speak and the way that, um, I feel like a lot of people that imitate other magicians, like they don't have good timing because they're trying to do it in someone else's timing and not their timing and how, how they move. Everyone has and then for, the next, for the next effect they do, they're, slower and then they have a different timing for the next thing because they learn yeah, another magician doesn't feel doesn't feel good yeah yeah how long how long have you been a full-time professional uh 20 years 20 years this year september 20 years and what was that process like were you pretty like were you transitioning into a full-time professional or you know i process I went, like? I went to university i studied finance at nyu i went to stern which is you know okay um a business school and i graduated with a degree in finance international business and when i graduated i thought you know i'm going to become an investment banker i'm going to work in finance and i started to apply for a lot of jobs and I got a few offers and, and, and they weren't jobs that I wanted exactly. I was like, you know, this isn't a job I really want. Uh, for example, it was a job. One of the jobs was at Bear Stearns and it was a guy who, you know, at that point knew that I, you know, I, I've been doing magic kind of socially in New York at that point. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he knew that I was within certain social circles in New York. Cause I, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at networking and he wanted me to bring some of those people in to be his clients at Bear Stearns. 
And I decided that I didn't want to exploit my contacts and the people that like I built my little network for somebody else's benefit. So I turned down the job and I was like, you know, I'm just going to do magic in the meantime till I find the job that I want. And then, uh, you know, I started to be able to make a living with magic and things, yeah, things got better and better. And, you know, I found no reason to go into finance. That's great. It was never really a conscious decision to become a professional magician. It was more of like, yeah, I'll, I'll do this fun thing that I'm already doing for fun, like, and make some money in the meantime. And it just kind of, it worked, you know? But for a lot of people, there was a period where it just didn't work out. But it sounds like for you, it was just kind of quite a smooth process of being a full-time pro. Um, I wouldn't say it was smooth. There was definitely a learning curve. And, and you know, I used to do a lot of bar mitzvahs and things, you know, events that are not the, the most prestigious kind of events. But, the, you know, those things were necessary. Those things taught me a lot. Taught me how to, like, work in loud environments and um, not be phased by that kind of stuff that, I could be plug and play, put me in any situation. I'm happy, you know. That's why. Yeah, are I, you are you, are you someone who still say yes to everything? I'm I'm guessing not. No, I don't say yes. I you know I there was a certain um there's a certain freedom. Like at, at one point in my career, I don't remember what the point was, but at one point in the career, I didn't have to take every job. In the beginning, I had to take every job because I needed to make money, and pay rent, and like buy food, and you know I was like a you know a kid. It's my early 20s. But at some point, I didn't need to take every job. I had enough of a buffer that, like, I could say no to stuff. And there was a certain power that came with that, that when you no longer need to take a job, you no longer need a job, you take the ones that you want, then, um, you know, it feels good. Yeah. And it allows you to kind of, get into the niches and the markets that you want to get into and not just stay in that bar mitzvah, you know, right. nothing bar mitzvah magicians. Look, some of those guys make bank and like they're doing really well. It's just not, not the stuff I want to do. Yeah. So growing up, you grew up in New York, right? No, I grew up in uh, a few places in the Middle East. So in Oman and Saudi Arabia. And I grew up in Germany for a few years. And then I moved to New York. I moved to the States when I was 15. I went to boarding school at age 15, which is where I kind of picked up magic. And then I moved to New York when I was 18 to go to business school. Okay. So when you started magic, you were in New York already? I was in boarding school. So I was in New Jersey. I went to boarding school in Princeton. Okay. And were there people who were teaching you when you were younger? Like, did you have mentors or? No, but, um, you know, I, so... The way I got into magic, I, my parents dropped me off at boarding school. We, we landed in New York. We spent like a night or two days in New York. And then they drove me down to, to Princeton. And I was in Times Square and I walked into a store called Magic Max. There was a magician there, uh, Magic Ballet. Magic Ballet was there. If you guys know magic. Um, oh, yeah. I met him. Yeah. So magic was there. I met magic when I was like 15. And I feel like that's everybody's magic story. Yeah. <laughs> Alex Pandreas, huh? Alex has magic through, through magic play. Different, different way, but similar. Um, so yeah, magic was doing magic with cigarettes and stealing watches and doing stuff that was cool. I was like, I'm going to learn that. So he recommended two books. I got Now You See It, Now You Don't by Bill Tarr. And uh -huh. 
Bobo, Coin Magic. And I went back to boarding school and I just played around with it. I didn't show it to anybody. I kept it for myself. I just enjoyed the, the thinking and the techniques and the secrets. And, um, so no mentor, just, uh, just playing around. And then when I went to NYU, Magic uh, and I became very close friends. And we used to go out to bars. I was underage. We used to go to bars. And I watched him perform. And he's such a um lively and active performing he's really good he's so good and uh you know i just i just uh i learned a lot mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. and then who were your heroes when you were younger like whether it um, when it comes to reading or videos or whatever so i grew up watching paul daniels i think that's kind of the first first kind of big influence paul daniels is amazing he was so good at just like improvising the stuff. I heard stories about Paul Daniels, Ali Bongo would be backstage before, before they'd be filming a, you know, a segment and he'd show Paul how a prop worked and Paul would look at it and try it once and be like, okay, got it. And he'd go out and he'd perform something that like he was able to create a routine around like super quickly and super easily. And he just made everything look natural. And he was so good at just interacting with the audience. He's just a funny, likable guy. Didn't matter what he was doing. He was so good. Um, so I grew up watching Paul Daniels and huge admiration for him. Wow. I think, I think when you understand magic, you start to great, grow an appreciation for, you know, people see Paul Daniels and they see like Juan. And I think as non-magicians, you just think like, oh yeah, like they're magicians. But like when you find a guy, magic, it's like, wow, these guys are at a different level. Um, the nuances and, and the charm and and the energy that they give out is is amazing yeah paul daniels huh? like did you ever find yourself like i i, I don't consider you as a comical performer no, in, no, in any way no. um no. but did you ever find yourself kind of like er, at early stages kind of like adopting or no, because I never really got into the kind of the, the, the proppy kind of stuff that he was doing. I think magic was a little different, uh, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s than the stuff that I'd seen in the 80s from Paul Daniels, you know. So, you know, I grew up watching him and like, but the stuff that he was doing, I never, I never really did chop cups or like anything like that. The one routine that I'm obsessed with of his, <clears throat> obsessed, uh, and I would don't think I'd ever do it, but you know, there's certain routines that you, you can love and like study and, um, but it was his electric chair. His electric okay. chair routine is phenomenal and it's so magical. It's so funny. It's so entertaining. And I've never seen an electric chair routine. that's as good as his, um, you know? Huh. Yeah. And what about the, I don't, I've never, I've never watched it. I, I I've oh, got to look yeah. into it. I have, a, I have a few kind of favorite old clips. That's one of them. Yeah, the yeah, other, let's go into those. So that's that's definitely one. The, the other one, uh, the first magician I ever saw, ever, I saw two magicians within, within like a month and a half of each other. So I grew up in Oman. Oman is in the Middle East at the time, like it was 1987. So I was eight years old, I think, when I saw this magician. And the magician is uh, PC Sorkar Jr., and P.C. Sorkar Jr., you know, he comes from this lineage of magicians. His father's a magician. He's a magician. His daughter's a magician. 
Um, but he has an amazing clip on the Paul Daniels show. So you got to watch one of Paul okay. Daniels show, of a blindfold act. Um, and it's amazing. Uh, you know, because you remember, oh, maybe I saw this magician when I was a kid and like what he does was like generic and like maybe not so good. And he cuts one in half and he poured like water out of a pot and like whatever yep. stuff. And then, and then later when you start to, under, you know, understand and know magic and you watch him as a performer now knowing magic, man, he was good. So he did a blindfold act that is phenomenal. And I'm not a big fan of blindfold acts, but when you watch this guy, you start to see him doing things and skills where you think that the, the feeling at the end, like for me, feelings are really important. I, oh, we can talk about that as well, but like the feeling that you get at the end is this guy can do anything, right? That's the mm -hmm. feeling. He gets blindfolded. I don't want to give it away because it's so good and it, you just have to watch and see the details, but he does all this stuff while he's blindfolded that just, again, feels real and in the moment and things that like, don't feel like, oh, I'm going to do this today and this and then this and this. It's like, no, someone did this and he's going to react to it and create this. And then someone did this and he did this. And like, it just feels like it doesn't mm. matter what you throw at him. He's making it real and crazy and in the moment. And it's phenomenal. Right. So PC Sorkar on the Paul Daniels show blindfold act. It's like, I'm, I don't know, like eight, nine minutes. Okay. Okay. So those two electric chair, PC Sorkar on Paul Daniels. And then my third one um, is, I'm blanking his name now. Uh, German guy, cardboard box illusion. Why am I blanking his name? Uh, Lubor, Lubor no, Fittler? No. Uh, his son did a crossbow act. Uh, his, his wife's name was Helga. I'll remember the name when I'm thinking about it. He does a cardboard box illusion where he goes into this cardboard box. It's on like a metal stand. He gets mm -hmm. into this cardboard box and then uh, two audience members are picked and they have this roll of, row of canes and they put the canes through this cardboard box. It feels really janky. And his wife is like helping put these canes through and it all feels like it's got these cheesy music to it, you know. Um, and then at the end, they pull the canes out. I don't want to give it away, but this amazing thing happens when they pull the canes out. Okay. <laughs> It's so good. And I'll, I'll remember his name. Uh, Hans Moretti. Hans, Hans Moretti? Hans Moretti's Cardboard Box Illusion. Oh, God, it's I'm so over. excited now. <laughs> it's so good. And I don't know how it works. I don't want to know how it works. Oh, seriously? I, Till this I, day? I don't want to know. That's great. That's great. I, I've actively chosen not to like even try to figure it out because it's just so good. It's so weird and it's good and it's... Uh, I don't think it would work on TV today by any means, but like, it's just, it's good. <laughs> yeah. There aren't that many mysteries like that. Once you get into magic for a long time. So. I, you know, I've, How I many fond memories of watching this stuff. I just don't, I don't want to spoil it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure if I watch the footage, I could like look at it and figure it out or I could research it or, you know, like, you can do all this stuff, but that would just ruin it for me. I, I, but that's I, a different, that's a different mind watching the same thing, you know, like it's a different, yeah, you, you may, you may just very well not want to do that. I don't, I don't want to. I, I like it. Same with Paul Daniels. He like, he explained his whole electric chair act and, you know, I've researched it and I know how electric chairs work, but like, 
I don't want it all his work on it. I just enjoy watching it because I think if you if you know all of his work, he published it in in um, his five DVD set. I think it's five. Talk to all the work on it. But I think once you know the work on it, you start to see it a little bit differently. And I don't want to see it differently. I like to see it for like just the entertainment value because it's so good. And I, I would never do it. I know how electric chairs work, but it's just uh, it's more interesting to watch. And like, Yeah, it's hard to replace that emotions that it gave you yeah. when you enjoyed it that much. Yeah. Well, earlier on, you mentioned emotions is perhaps the thing that you value the most yeah so i learned something danny dorty's said something years ago to me uh and he was talking about um a shuffled deck right and like false shuffles and he said that imagine someone takes a deck and on a table and they do these perfect zara shuffles with such finesse they push the cards through and it just and they do like 10 of them it doesn't matter how many all these cuts and, and it's all perfectly aligned and beautiful versus um, somebody that does like an in the hands, like slop shuffle. And like when they put the cards down, like they kind of spread on the table and they're far away from the cards. They don't, they're not protective of them. And their attitude towards the deck is I don't care when they pick them up, they leave one on the table and they pick it up and put it back on top. And like this attitude and Danny said to me, which one do you think feels more shuffled? And I said, of course, the one where like the guy is like just haphazard with the deck. And like when he puts it down, like it kind of like isn't perfect. It kind of mm -hmm. beveled and, you know, it just feels more chaotic, you know, versus this guy who's doing these perfect zero shuffles that look amazing. And I think that even though you're doing these perfect sleight of hand, people feel like this guy has skill with the cards. And it's just, it all looks, it looks perfect. And the cards are being shuffled so elegantly versus this kind of like haphazard, I don't care attitude towards the deck. And it made me realize that like the feelings are more important than what you see, right? That it's more important to make someone feel like the deck is shuffled versus show them the deck is shuffled, you know? Right. Um, and I think that that can be extrapolated much further than just shuffling cards to anything in magic, right? That the, the feeling that you give the spectator is more important than, than, than what you're doing, right? Or what they see. You're making them feel like you haven't touched a thing. Yeah. Like all, all that kind of stuff. Like, like what they feel about something that it shuffled or it was chaotic or it was their idea or like all that stuff is more important than like perfect technique and you know all that kind of stuff that is a that's a very very hard subject to kind of formulate but i, I think that comes with experience and also kind of like a like a sense of intuition i think once you've performed a lot as a magician and, and yeah, created so. a lot right i think so i don't know that's great yeah, no, that's 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 really something I, I I value was was that it was such a, a small lesson that he he was talking about, but I was like, wow, he's right. Like, what a person feels is more impactful than what they see. Yeah, I think also very often magicians, as both individuals and uh, as a collective, we're so because we have methods, we have our our you know, and, and probably also predominantly it consists of guys mm -hmm. it's so logical and so mind-based you know like oh you do this and then you do that and then there's step three and then there's step four right. but 
yeah, the emotion and how people feel actually is the it forms the experience more so than very often the techniques and the tactics. And I think, you know, to use an analogy uh, close to your heart, like surfing, I'm not a surfer, I know nothing about surfing, but, you know, catching a wave. And I think you can kind of catch and ride a spectator's wave of emotion and kind of use that against them in in some way or like build upon it, you know? Um, Yeah, I think that that's important. I mean, these are such abstract, uh, you know, concepts but i think good magicians are always doing that they're kind of using the energy of the group or the crowd to like either yeah i remember i remember distinctly i remember distinctly one time i was in cadiz with juan juan tamarist and i saw him do a show um for 40 like 30 40 laymen i don't understand what he was saying because it was in spanish but there was the benefit also just of just watching what he was doing, what he was communicating and how people were responding to it. Usually when we do an effect like, Oh, uh, and bam, and there's the card or whatever. The, the curve of the emotions were, are, are usually like, Whoa. And then they kind of are shocked in awe and then they burst into applause. And then it kind of just, slowly dies out and you transition into something else right but with juan it was strange it was like yes they had that moment of awe it was like whoa and then they like look at each other and then they start clapping and then that wave and then they see juan being so happy to be there and loving them and then the the applause keep building and then it was kind of like like stalling and then it would build again like I'm like, wow, I've never seen that before. But this is someone who just has that openness without necessarily doing anything extra. Right. I have a video of it too. Like he wasn't doing anything. He was just sitting there. And the applaud was just like, whoa, like a wave, you know, like, yeah. like COVID. It was like <laughs> five waves. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. great. One's amazing. And in the, in the 90s, Wait, when did the street magic of David Blaine come out? I think 97, I think. I think 97. Was that impactful for you? Or did, did you, you didn't know David then, did you? I didn't know him. No, I, I met David in 2002. Um, yeah, look, I think, of course, I think it was impactful even in, I, I don't think I was a fan of David when it first came out for the same reason other people weren't. I didn't really know much about magic at the time. 1997, been doing magic for like two years. Didn't really show to anybody. Wasn't really performing. But, you know, all the stuff that he was doing at the time was, you know, he was using a raven. I'm like, I have a raven. I could do that, you know. Right. But it's because I didn't understand. I didn't understand, um, you know, the, the nuances of how David sets people up and like how stuff is filmed and how do you extract the most out of a situation. David's really good at that like putting him in a situation and figuring out how to extract the most out of it, like the most mm. amazement out of the situation. Oh, you know, and also David has like an artistic eye that like other people don't have, you know, like that kid who's like shirtless, that goes like, wow. And it's like, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with that 
piece, but David fought for that to be in the, in the show, if I remember correctly. And it's just this weird reaction. It's not like an amazing reaction of like people freaking out, running down the street. It's just like very subdued, like, wow, from this shirtless kid like in middle of nowhere somewhere. And it's like, you know, all those kind of stylistic stuff that David has a really strong eye for. You know? Yeah, that is not that is not anything that is really within. That's something that he brings to the table, I feel. Yeah, he brings all of it to the table, honestly. Um, but yeah, he uh, that that shows very much him. He 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 doesn't bow to like you know what other people want. It's like no, that shows it's him. He's putting it out. It doesn't matter if it takes him twice as long as he promised. Like he'll figure out how to make it amazing and good and make it uh, something he's proud of. Yeah. Right, right. It's important. I think. I think it's important to be proud of what you're doing. If you're not proud of it, then like, what's the point? And are you proud of what you're doing? I think so. I hope so. That's good, man. <laughs> I think I'm creating, creating, uh, you know, fun stories for people, and I'm excited to perform for people, and I'm happy to be doing what I'm doing. That's great, yeah. man. Well, I hope you. How about you? Let's, let's ask you some questions. Okay, let's go. Tell us about uh, what you've been doing the past couple of years. Um, past couple of years. Um, well, so a couple of years ago, I started Blackstone Magic Bar, which was when I um, was performing perhaps the most in my life. Um, like we were doing, like me and a team of magicians we were doing. That's like Sh Shanghai or where is it? Yeah, in Shanghai, like seven to 10 shows a week, right? And that was great. Um, and then kind of, yeah, that was really a dream come true, like to have all these guys, uh, heroes and friends coming over from all over the world um, to kind of, yeah, just merge the world between the audience of Shanghai and the, the magic world that, you know, that we love. That was great. And then COVID kind of hit and then that project just had to end the project. Then I moved to Bali and, and then, but in the process of that, I've, I've, it's been a good process that I've been developing magic in a different way. I think seeing how um, I've been very isolated from the magic um seen in bali because they're just uh, there was there's one 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 magician uh friend that i hang out with his name is gene but other than that it's a completely um no conjure island but but i wouldn't say no magic um, sure. because there are people with um very unique perspectives on magic i remember talking to a yoga teacher and he was like look you magicians you don't get to see the magic you practice so that we see the magic right i'm like dude that's like that the, these perspectives and sometimes i really see that um layman's perspectives on magic is often more deeper and profound than a lot of magicians because they think about that in a very different way right and so yeah so now now i'm um, creating a book um, on some of the things I've created um, in the past, the, the last couple of years, and writing some of these um, 
encounters and um, things I've learned down uh, about magic, mentalism, bit of hypnosis and um, and all that. So yeah, that's what I've been doing. Cool. I want yeah, to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope I hope so. I hope so. I'm working on it, so it's like um, in the editing phase. Are you going to open up another another spot somewhere? Not at the moment, because as I was kind of reviewing what were the things that I really enjoyed versus you know the parts I like didn't enjoy as much. It was what you were talking about. It was the the stories and the the, the creation of moments and performing and the kind of the constant doing of that. And now I'm now what I'm planning is to do shows and tours and do sell tickets and um, cool. public for public. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then in Hong Kong or where? Um, Hong Kong and then uh, Europe probably whenever I I leave Hong Kong from now. And um, and then go from there because there is I I don't know you. If you know, but there there is a downside to also owning a FMB venue, food and beverage venue, right? It's like um, when when Doug McKenzie is in town for thirty days, he can hop around all the events and do all these things and blow people's mind, and then go into onto another thing. But if he's here in this showroom every single day, I'll see him next week. Right. Yeah. You know, like that, that, that dynamic becomes a little bit different. I think also like I'm, I'm, I'm young, so I want to do more traveling. I want to meet more people and, uh, and to perform in more cities and places. So that's, that's what I like to do. That's exciting, dude. Yeah, man. Well, it's, um, it's been good chatting. Yeah. We need to do it more often. Yeah. We should absolutely do that. But um, if they come back to Hong Kong, if they uh, don't arrest me, <laughs> yeah, don't get arrested again in Hong Kong because this time it might be different. I think times have changed. I think yeah, I don't think you can get out of uh, get get out of the police with a, with 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 card magic this time. It would be a little bit different. Sentiment towards the police and everything has changed. Right, it's slightly different. But anyway, um, thank you for doing this. It's been a true pleasure, my friend. You too, buddy. Well, let's talk again soon. Yes, please. Goodbye. All right, see you.